So first, welcome to those who um, have joined us this morning, some commuters and possibly some staff, is that right? Anyway, bodies have magically appeared in the room since last night. <laughs> I'm going to start um, with a talk entitled uh, The Awakening of the West. Uh, some of you might be aware that this was the title of a book I published in 1994. It's recently been reissued by Echo Point Press, which is an online publishing company, which will print it on demand. And the book was a study of the uh, encounters, historically, between uh, Buddhism in, in its various Asian forms and uh, Western civilization. And I'd like to just sort of go over some of that material this morning in order to put um, what we're going to be studying this week into its historical context. When I wrote this book, um, one of the things that struck me was that from around the time of about 1800, there appeared to be a sequence of of phases, roughly 40 years each, um, in which Buddhism somehow shifted into another gear. In other words, it uh, became that much more understood, or Westerners entered into a different kind of relationship with it. And since I completed the book in 94, I finished writing it in the early 90s, um, I had the um, anticipation that um, in a couple of, in about a decade's time, we would enter into one of, into another phase. And I think that has happened. But before I go into the more recent history, let's first of all wind back the clock and look at what the very earliest contacts were, or could have been, this is rather speculative, between uh, Buddhist culture and that of uh, the West, particularly that of the ancient Greeks. We know from Greek records themselves that um, two philosophers um, were supposed to have uh, studied in India. The first of these is Democritus. Democritus is somehow, is sometimes considered a pre-Socratic, but oddly, he actually was a contemporary of Socrates. He was the first materialist. Uh, he conceived of the world as constituted of atoms and void. In other words, atoms running around in space. And everything he uh, then maintained emerged from that 
the movements of atoms in the void. He went, uh, according to the records, he went to India, which would have been around the time of the Buddha himself. He also met Socrates, but says that Socrates did not know him. Um, Democritus advocated also a practice that uh, culminated in what he called ataraxia, an untroubled mind. And the uh, Greek records describe him as someone who had a little hut at the end of his garden where he would go and contemplate the perception of things. And at other times he would uh, go into the graveyards and meditate there. Our knowledge about him is very fragmentary. We know a bit more about the next Greek, who is, um, when in this case, I think we can say with some confidence, uh, did uh, study in India. This was Piro, the founder of the School of Skepticism. He traveled to India with uh, Alexander the Great. Uh, Alexander brought two philosophers with him. One was Anaxarchus, and Pyrrho was the disciple of Anaxarchus. Anaxarchus um, was a follower of Metrodorus, who was a disciple of Democritus. So in other words, we have Pyrrho within the Democritian tradition, um, going to India with Alexander, and studying with the gymnosophists, as they were called, the naked sages, which was a generic term the Greeks used for these philosophers who didn't wear very much. Uh, we have, um, although there's no mention of Buddhism, the word Buddha in any of these uh, philosophers' work, certain of their ideas, particularly those of Pyrrho, uh, bear striking resemblances to certain forms of Buddhist thought. We'll come back to that later in the week. But Nietzsche uh, recognized uh, that, quote, although a Greek, Pyrrho was a Buddhist, if not a Buddha. Uh, he published that in his, that was published in his posthumous work, uh, Will to Power. Uh, 1906. So we have at the very early um, period, pre-Christian period, this is about the 5th and 4th centuries BC, um, possibilities that early Greek thought was influenced by ideas that may have had their origins in the Buddha's teaching. But within uh, about six, seven hundred years with the rise of Christianity and the adoption of the Christian religion as the uh, religion of the state, uh, the Greek philosophical schools were suppressed. They were closed down, essentially, by um, es uh, Emperor Justinian was uh, one of the people who did this. And this has sometimes been called the closing of the Western mind. Um, instead of uh, the kind of diverse philosophical approaches we find with the Greeks, 
Remember that philosophy for the Greeks is a practice. It's not just an academic discipline. Um, effectively, Europe entered into an exclusively Christian and somewhat intolerant period. Nonetheless, particularly with the, um, with the advent of colonialism, where the Pope literally carved the world into two sectors. He drew a line through the uh, Atlantic Ocean at the level of the Cape Verde Islands, and he says everything to the east of this is the preserve of the Portuguese, everything to the west, the preserve of the Spanish. So the Portuguese set out to colonize and to um, uh, you know, seek some kind of uh, control over the countries of Asia. In their wake, uh, Jesuit priests came along, particularly uh, Francis Xavier, who was the founder of the Jesuits, went to Goa, then he went to Japan, and he died actually trying to get into China. And through his writings, we get the first reports, for example, of a, of a Zen monastery. Um, Ippolito Desideri was um, a Jesuit sent to Lhasa. From him, we get the first um, accounts of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and in fact, quite recently in the Atlantic magazine, um, Alison Gopnik, have you read that? Alison Gopnik published this article uh, arguing, I think quite persuasively, that... Um, the Scottish philosopher David Hume actually derived some of his ideas from the work uh, and reports of Desideri. Uh, you're aware, perhaps, that Hume uh, had a view of the self. He said, there is no self, there is just uh, bundles of perceptions and sensations and so forth and so on. Um, he very possibly picked up that idea from his stay at a Jesuit house in France called La Fleche, where he met um, people who had recently encountered Desideri and another Jesuit who had been in Thailand. He makes no reference to this. He wouldn't have even known the word Buddhism, but it's possible uh, that uh, Buddhist ideas filtered into uh, Hume's uh, sceptical philosophy, which again is a resonance of the early scepticism of Pyrrho, perhaps. In any case, the Jesuits weren't interested in understanding uh, Buddhism uh, apart from the need to prove that it was the work of the devil. Uh, their job was to impose truth on the darkness and delusion of the Asian cultures. Uh, again, this is totally tied up with the uh, power of the colonial forces who seek to impose their control over these places. But it was the Jesuits um, who first began to figure out that all of these different religions in Asia that they encountered, which initially were thought of to be quite different, what was going on in Tibet and China, Japan, Sri Lanka, these were seen as sort of folk traditions specific to those countries. Towards the end of the uh, 17th century, 
um, a certain Father Pons uh, realized actually all of these uh, different forms of religion had a common origin in India. But it's at this point that we enter into the first of my hypothetical 40-year cycles. And I'm going to make the year 1800. This um, was the point at which, for the first time, non-European, uh, non-Christian texts were translated into Latin primarily, uh, including the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the Shakuntala, which was a Sanskrit uh, theatrical work, a religious theatrical work. Um, certain uh, uh, fraction, fragments of the Upanishads made, made their way into uh, Latin around this time, but nothing Buddhist. This led also through the British in India establishing the uh, Royal Asiatic Society in Calcutta around the same time. And uh, the philologist and uh, judge, uh, Sir William Jones, uh, studied Sanskrit. And he discovered that Sanskrit was, in fact, um, of the same language group as Latin and Greek. In other words, the Indo-European language group uh, was understood for the first time. And this, again, brought India, Indian thought, um, linguistically into the same sphere as, as that of our European languages. They were aware of a, a figure called the Buddha. Uh, William Jones thought the Buddha was just another uh, Indian god. Um, because of the way he was represented, they had this curious notion he might be Ethiopian because of the, 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 the hair, I suppose. And um, it also was a period where um, there was a kind of romantic projection onto Eastern religion and Eastern thought. And a man called Friedrich Schlegel, uh, who was very well known at the time, but is largely forgotten today, um, he coined the expression, uh, the Oriental Renaissance. And he foresaw that the discovery of uh, Asian traditions was comparable to the rediscovery of the Greek traditions in the, in the European Renaissance. And he felt that culture would be correspondingly enriched by our um, opening to translation of texts and, uh, un and, and the subsequent understanding that Asian uh, knowledge would uh, provide for us. It was also at this time that uh, the word Buddhism came into existence. Uh, prior to this, there was no such, there was no term that could represent these different religious groups in India, but now the West had finally come up with a label, Buddhism, and we're still stuck with it. Uh, there is no equivalent term in the uh, Asian languages. Um, and I know for many people, it, it sits uncomfortably with what we do. And I would very much prefer to use the word simply the Dharma, or the Buddha Dharma, 
which is much closer to what um, it has been known in Asia. So that's the f th this is the first phase, um, 1800 and the beginning of Orientalism, the Oriental Renaissance. Um, but at this point, still no clear knowledge at all of what is distinctive about what they called Buddhism, just another Hindu sect. Next phase begins in 1840. Now, the key um, moment here is the um, first scholarly account of Buddhism based upon a reading of the early Buddhist texts, both in Pali and in Sanskrit. And this was achieved by a remarkable scholar called Eugène Bernouf. And in 1844, he published a book called um, L'Introduction au Bouddhisme Indien, Introduction to Indian Buddhism. Um, about 400 pages, but based upon the re actual reading of Buddhist texts, sutras, and so on. Bernouf uh, went on in 1852 to publish a translation of the Lotus Sutra, which was one of the first complete translations of a Buddhist text. And this provided, for the very first time, uh, a comprehensive and even by today's standards, broadly accurate account of what constituted uh, the Buddhist uh, religious doctrines, uh, practices, uh, and so forth and so on. So suddenly things begin to crystallize into a coherent and uh, uh, intelligible account of this, what we would now call, world religion. Uh, Schopenhauer, the philosopher, um, a few years later, 1844, I think, he, he said this. He said, um, he was very gratified to see my doctrine, his philosophical doctrine, in such close agreement with a religion that the majority of men on earth hold as their own. Schopenhauer, um, we don't have time to get into Schopenhauerian philosophy, but basically he, um, he developed the ideas of Kant. Um, his most famous book is, a, is called uh, Die Welt als Wille und Vorstellung, World as Will and Idea. Uh, and he, uh, again, was the first philosopher, modern philosopher, um, to explicitly refer and draw from uh, non-European traditions. Again, his, the materials he had available to him at the time were very, very limited, but nonetheless, and very likely uh, because of Bernouf's work, uh, he drew the conclusion that what he was talking about uh, the kind of liberation from the dominance of the will he thought of as being comparable to the Buddhist experience of nirvana. In 1860, and these are quotes I found um, here and there when I was doing this book, um, we have a certain Abbé Deschamps who said, one only has to admire with what speed through its first contact with the spirit of investigation that characterizes our age, uh, 
Buddhism has emerged from its profound obscurity and its long silence. And this is a, a sentiment that was quite common in this period. The, the sudden appearance of a, an historical figure um, in many ways comparable to Jesus, um, whose teachings had had an impact across half of the known world, the whole of Asia, uh, came as a deep shock to the West. Um, another abbe, a guy called Paul de Broglie, um, said, the appearance of this little-known religion has produced profound surprise. It seems to destroy the entire basis of Christian apologetics. In other words, the uniqueness of the Christian revelation. And even some of the proofs for the existence of God. And this is written by a, a Christian, a writer. So Buddhism uh, really um, <clears throat> set the cat among the pigeons, in a sense. It upset the apple cart of the foundations for the European sense of their uh, specialness and um, exceptional uh, culture and religion. Suddenly something else is seen to exist, which is in many respects similar, Compro comparable uh, depth of philosophical understanding, of spiritual practice, of religious uh, forms and institutions. And yet they knew nothing about Christ or God or any of these things at all. So this was a rupture in the, um, uh, the, the certainties of the Europeans. Okay, next 40-year phase. 1880 now. We've got 1800, 1840, now 1880. What was most significant about this was that in this next phase, the first Westerners um, actually seek to identify as Buddhists, to practice Buddhism. Until here, nobody had actually, however interested they might have been um, in Buddhism, they, it would never have crossed their minds to actually become a Buddhist, uh, to actually practice this stuff. It was of interest as a, in a purely intellectual way. But in the 1880s, or starting in around the 1880s, um, we shifted into, I think, a very significant new gear. And this took, this took place in two ways. The first and perhaps the most popular movement um, to embrace Buddhism was, was theosophy. Theosophy was founded uh, in the 1880s by Helena Blavatsky and uh, uh, Colonel Henry Steele Olcott, an American, I think from around here actually, or New York may, may, maybe. Concord. Oh, he came from Concord? Olcott came from Concord? Well, there you go, you see. Oh, that's right. Yeah, okay, okay. Well, you see. We're steeped in it around here. Well, that's... <laughs> okay, well, that's... Uh, uh, now, the theosophists, as you probably know, 
um, were a, what we would now call a new religious movement. And they sought, for the first time actually, to um, almost invent a religion uh, that was no longer um, by any means exclusively uh, monotheistic or Christian, but they drew from Hinduism, they drew from Buddhism, and Buddhism in many ways was the one that they sort of favored, let's say. And um, Olcott and Blavatsky went to Sri Lanka in 1880, and they received the lay Buddhist precepts from a bhikkhu in Gale, in the southern part of Sri Lanka. In other words, they formally became lay Buddhists. Olcott stayed in Sri Lanka and uh, became a, a key figure in the reform of uh, Sinhalese Buddhism. He saw that Buddhism was in a pretty sorry state, uh, largely because of the uh, colonial powers of the Portuguese, the Dutch, and then the British, who had more or less suppressed it, uh, tried to introduce Christianity. Olcott took the side of the indigenous Buddhists, developed uh, and wrote a thing called the Buddhist Catechism, and sought to uh, you know, revive the movement. If you've seen the international Buddhist flag, it's a sort of rainbow-colored stripy thing, uh, that was designed by Olcott. So they were very much involved um, with uh, not only Buddhism as a form of practice, but also they were involved in reviving Buddhism in Asia in uh, opposition to the Christian missionaries. Recent scholarship um, has, now, uh, uh, has now discovered that the first uh, Westerner to become a Buddhist monk was um, uh, an Irish itinerant worker called Lawrence O'Rourke. Um, he was born in Dublin. He then came to America. He was a sort of hobo-like migrant worker. He crossed the continent from Boston or New York over to California. He then took a ship to Japan and uh, eventually landed in Burma. And probably in the 1880s at some point became a, a novice uh, Buddhist monk. Now, O'Rourke um, was not a, um, a, a sort of a rather detached European scholar. He was a, he was a, he was a working man. And yet, like all human beings, he had questions about what life meant. And he was probably drawn into the Buddhist monasteries uh, in the first instance because they offered him free food and shelter. And it appears that this could likely have been the case with many undocumented um, migrant workers, vagabonds, beachcomber types who drifted around the peripheries of empire in Asia and um, and ended up staying in Buddhist monasteries. I mean, from their point of view, you know, what is there not to like? <laughs> the only problems, of course, there was no booze and no women. But O'Rourke took this um, to heart. He was probably an alcoholic. Um, and rather than become a student of uh, Pali texts or a meditator in a hermit, he became a social activist. 
he tried to um, uh, rouse the Burmese to stand up against the British. Um, he published polemical tracts, an anti-Christian, anti-colonial, and anti-alcohol. He was a foremost uh, advocate of temperance, as it was known in those days. But he also published uh, um, Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man. Um, he considered himself a thoroughgoing atheist, and he saw Buddhism as entirely compatible with uh, the kind of uh, uh, religious and also um, social movements that were then afoot uh, here in America and uh, elsewhere. And then in, uh, towards the end of the century, he received full ordination and received the name Dhammaloka, U Dhammaloka. Um, and uh, he was eventually um, arrested by the British and he was charged with sedition and uh, tried in court. Um, he got off fairly lightly. He wasn't imprisoned. Um, but that's one of the main sources we have on his life, is the trial. Um, he subsequently uh, went to India. Uh, he went to Southeast Asia, to Siam, to Singapore. He even went as far as Australia. But we only get very fragmentary bits of information from newspaper cuttings. And around 1912, he just disappeared. He just went off the map. We don't know where he died. Uh, we know nothing about the circumstances of his last years. But um, he, I feel, is a very uh, engaging figure. One who in many ways is a precursor of the beats and the hippies who went and did something similar in the 1960s. The Buddhist, the Westerners who became Buddhist monks um, uh, that we know far more about, and we tend to see ourselves in their, in their lineage, um, start with a man called uh, Jnana Tiloka, who was the teacher of Jnana Pornika. Jnana Pornika was the teacher of Bhikkhu Bodhi and Jnana Moli. Um, and that's the line that still comes down to us today. But these men were European intellectuals. Um, Jnana Tiloka, who was called Anton Gut was trained as a classical musician and composer. Uh, he settled uh, in Sri Lanka and founded what's called the Island Hermitage, which still exists today, and established for the first time uh, a Buddhist monastic community for uh, non-Asian people, for Western people. Okay, so that's again a, a very key period. Um, 1880 to around 1920. Now, 1920 is the next point in my 40-year cycle, but it doesn't fit my theory quite so well. This was a very dark period. From 1920 through to the, through the 50s, this was a period in which, as we know, Europe descended into mass slaughter and violence and war. And... It was a period, though, um, of enormous significance in European self-consciousness because it woke people up to the undeniable fact that in spite of all of their so-called civilization, 
their deep religious convictions, uh, they were quite capable of descending into barbarity. And this, I think, was a profound existential shock uh, to the whole, um, the whole European culture and the, you know, the Christian culture of Europe and America. What was going on in Europe and America during this period, the 20s, uh, for the, the period starting from the 1920s, all we really had were small groups of scholars and intellectuals who gathered together to discuss Buddhist ideas. Uh, in Germany, we find the first, uh, one of the first Buddhist centers that was actually custom built. It's called Buddha House. Uh, in Frohnau, in Berlin, founded by a guy called Paul Dahlke, still exists today. Um, in England, we find the formation of the Buddhist Society by Christmas Humphreys in 1924. But that was about it. Nyanatiloka um, and the German monks who were in uh, island hermitage, the British uh, deported them, imprisoned them in Australia during the First World War. Um, and in North India in the Second World, World War. So all of, that pro all of those projects were basically came to a halt during this period. At the same time, during this period, uh, in a very quiet, uh, understated way, we have an ongoing uh, translation of the Pali Canon, uh, undertaken by people like uh, uh, William, is it William? Rice Davids, I think it's William Rice Davids, um, F.W. Woodward, who was working in Australia. And slowly, Buddhist texts, the ones we'll be looking at in this week, uh, found their way into English for the first time. Um, so there was a slow, slightly, um, you know, underground almost, or highly, somewhat invisible movement. Uh, the Theos Theosophical Society continued, but in 1924, I think it was, um, they also hit a crisis uh, with a figure who we all know probably, Krishnamurti. Uh, Krishnamurti was um, recognized uh, by N Annie Besant and uh, a fellow called Leadbeater um, as the future Buddha as the next world teacher for our age. They found him as a young boy near Madras and identified him kind of like a tulku. They decided that he was going to be the next world teacher and he would be the Buddha Maitreya. So again, very much a, an explicitly Buddhist uh, vision. But in 1924, Krishnamurti uh, got a bit fed up with all this and um, renounced the whole thing and coined this wonderful phrase, um, truth is a pathless land, and refused to go along with this uh, scenario. But as we know, um, many of us, including myself, were strongly influenced by Krishnamurti's uh, somewhat iconoclastic ideas, the rejection of the guru, uh, the rejection of organized religion, and a very uh, explicit emphasis on the primacy of awareness 
and immediacy uh, and uh, living fully in the moment. Uh, Krishnamurti was a wonderful uh, teacher of this kind of uh, philosophy, both in his writings and more powerfully in his person. Anybody who had the opportunity to uh, spend a couple of hours listening to Krishnamurti couldn't but be uh, impressed by how, even as a very old man, I heard him when he was in his late 80s, he could hold an audience of hundreds of people on a razor's edge of inquiry. Quite amazing. So we have Krishnamurti coming through as well. Next 40-year uh, phase begins in the 1960s. Now we're getting up to, as it were, our own time. And a number of things come together at this point. First, um, socially, politically, economically, the uh, West recovers from the dark periods of the uh, wars, the First and Second World Wars, and embarks for the first time on a period of peace and also affluence. Uh, people had much more disposable income. And then we enter into the 1960s where this culture of optimism begins to emerge, or should I say this counter-culture of optimism um, that was fueled by many things. It was fueled by the Vietnam War and the re resistance uh, to that extremely unjust intervention by America in Vietnam. It was fueled by the civil rights movements, again here, by feminism, by the experimentation with uh, psychotropic drugs, and um, all of this coalesced at this period, but it also coincided with the Tibetan diaspora. The Dalai Lama leaves Tibet with about 100,000 of his followers, including many uh, very accomplished uh, lamas and monks, in 1959. Again, right at this point. Um, we have uh, then the the journey to the east, we have the beats, we have the hippies, and we have this uh, exodus from Europe, from America, from Australia, of young people, um, like myself, this is exactly what I did, what Joseph and Sharon and Jack, everybody did, is we, uh, is we, we, we headed off, we left behind uh, the sort of careers we may have had that our parents, no doubt, rather wanted us to have. And we bummed off to India, on Thailand and Japan, and um, dived into Buddhist culture. We became monks, nuns, um, dedicated practitioners, meditators. We did long retreats. We learned these Asian languages. Uh, we lived in monasteries. We trained and so on. Um, and then um, this generation came back eventually to the West and began places like the Insight Meditation Society here um, and numerous other communities and centers across Europe uh, and America and, and Australia. 
So this was really the, um, the first generation of, um, of Europeans and Americans, Westerners, to train and practice in the Dharma, uh, to become qualified as teachers and uh, scholars uh, in their own right, um, who effectively went native en masse um, on a far greater scale than Nyanatiloka and Udamaloka about um, you know, 70 years before. And that was really a movement, uh, and a movement that um, uh, began to bring Buddhism into a focus, not just for scholars or small groups of intellectuals or a few monks here and there, but um, it began the publication of popular books on, on Buddhism, uh, magazines, um, and so forth and so on. Uh, and that's, of course, the culture from which many of us in this room uh, have also come. It's our culture. It's our generation for many of us. Now, when I, I, when I wrote this book um, and researched it in the early 1990s, um, as I mentioned, I had this idea, okay, well, around 2000, something else should happen. <laughs> There should be another phase. And I really had no idea what it was going to be. Um, and what I think it is, is the, um, what we might call the mindfulness revolution, where the Dharma now penetrates beyond people who self-identify as Buddhists and penetrates into mainstream secular culture. Um, it now seems to me very clear that this was this is the next phase or the beginning of the next phase. Remember, we've got another 40 years to go in bachelor's theory of things, and uh, we probably won't be around to see the end of it. Um, but to me, this is by far the most um, uh, the most significant uh, shift in scale and in uh, penetration into modernity that the Buddhist tradition has known. Um, I find it almost, the, the French have a word, they say, uh, c'est hallucinant. It's hallucinatory, almost, that this is happening. Um, if someone had told me back in the 1970s when we were doing Goenka retreats in India, that in 40 years' time you could get Buddhist mindfulness meditation on the British National Health Service, <laughs> uh, I would have written them off as, you know, as nutcases, fantasists. But it's actually happened. Uh, about three weeks ago, uh, the all-party parliamentary committee on mindfulness in the British Parliament, I'm not making this up, <laughs> they published a, uh, a document proposing to the government that mindfulness be um, incorporated into the national curriculum in education, uh, into healthcare, which it already is being, uh, is already being done, into, um, into the workplace, as, uh, which is also happening, and also into the military. And this uh, document, which is basically a, 
a, pro a policy proposal uh, formed by the committee of which there are about 60 members of parliament uh, from different uh, groupings in the House of Lords and the House of Commons. Um, this is now being taken forward. Now, no one knows how much the government will actually implement, if anything, but the very fact that it's happening is extraordinary. In the British Parliament, uh, for the last couple of years now, they've been running eight-week MBSR courses, and something like 150 lords and members of Parliament have taken these courses. They're taught by a friend of mine, Chris Cullen, who uh, is a Vipassana teacher in London. Um, and, you know, mindfulness has got onto the cover of Time magazine. Again, extraordinary, really. Um, and, and in many, many ways. I don't need to sort of give many more examples because I'm sure we're all familiar with this. And we may even have certain reservations about it. The commodification of mindfulness, um, what Slavoj Žižek has called um, mindfulness or Buddhism is the opium of the middle classes. <laughs> <laughs> that it just makes us more, it numbs us to the, to the pressures of consumerism and capitalism, which is, a, which is a, an entirely um, uh, you know, reasonable uh, concern. Uh, but to me, I don't see this really as very problematic. I see this as just what happens to uh, what human beings do, is they, is they you know, co-opt what can be quite profound teachings and turn them into some, some something to serve the ego, basically. But again, I think it's a big mistake to um, focus only on that negative side. Um, I think the, the positive potential far outweighs those concerns. And I think it also blinds us to the fact and this is one of the reasons I'm giving this talk now, is that we need to see this in a broader historical perspective. We're basically talking now of nearly uh, 200 years in which we can discern, I think, quite clearly uh, a process, um, an historical movement that is bearing fruit in these different ways. And as someone who has been uh, in a, a witness to this since the 1970s, it's very clear to me that um, something's going on that no individual or group have any explicit control over. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn basically let the genie out of the bottle and you can't pull it back in again. Something is happening. We might call it the Dharma in a sort of vague, fuzzy way. has a life of its own in the sense that it speaks to people's deepest needs. And what I found as a meditation teacher leading retreats uh, for much of the year is that uh, this mindfulness movement has brought in a whole new wave of people who are coming on Vipassana retreats and probably retreats in other traditions because their experience of mindfulness, um, even in a completely secular setting like healthcare or business, has led them to uh, stop. It's interrupted the incessant chatter of the mind, which is in many ways driven by our the highly uh, intrusive uh, commercial culture. 
We're bombarded with data. We're constantly being pushed along. Mindfulness, even momentarily, opens up a gap. And when people settle into that gap, in other words, seeing their thoughts as thoughts rather than being driven unconsciously, being propelled by them, it opens up the possibility of allowing in far deeper questions as to what it means to be human. And many of these people then Google mindfulness and find out you can actually do longer retreats and it's a Buddhist thing. And they then develop that understanding. So what we're getting now in the retreats are people, more and more people, the, our retreats are now getting completely overbooked. Uh, more and more people are coming to the Dharma not because they've read books on Buddhism or because they've been inspired by the Dalai Lama on, at some public talk, but because they've had a first-hand transformative experience in their own lives. That, to me, is an enormous difference. You already have had the insight. I would go as far as saying a glimpse of nirvana uh, that you now seek to, to cultivate and to develop. And increasingly, in the mindfulness teaching world, uh, the teachers are coming to the teachers of the teachers, people like John Peacock and others, and saying, we need an ethical framework for this. We need a philosophy of life. We need, a, uh, we need to be able to embed this practice into a three-dimensional vision of what human life can be. Many of these people have no interest in becoming Buddhists. Many of them uh, you know, go into a Buddhist center because they think they'll learn more about mindfulness, and they're often put off by it being just another religion with all the accoutrements of dogmas and rituals and priests and incense and all these things. What they're looking for is a secular dharma. They're looking for uh, some uh, ethics, some philosophy that is stripped of the, um, the, the trappings of the Buddhist religion and the structures, the hierarchical structures of Buddhist power and made available in a way that retains the depth of the tradition and yet articulates it in a way that is uh, applicable in contemporary life. And your question, was it Dimitri's question about, you know, where do we draw the line here? How much can be let go of without compromising the integrity of the Dharma itself? That is an enormously important question and one that I hope will remain with for the rest of our week here together. It raises a whole bunch of questions. Um, is Buddhism a religion? Essen or essentially, is Buddhism a religion? Buddhism has certainly become a religion. If you go to Thailand or Tokyo or Lhasa and you go into a Buddhist temple, you'll be very hard pressed to say that this isn't religious behavior. But what is remarkable is that the practice of mindfulness is right at the core of the Dharma. It's, on, it's part of the Eightfold Path. 
it's, it's, it's utterly at the heart of the teaching and the practice. Um, and yet it's been accepted in a secular setting. It's, it's, it has been subject to uh, clinical trials that show that uh, it can that show that it's actually effective in achieving certain results. Now, I can't think of any other practice from another of the world religions that would be able to withstand that kind of, um, of, uh, of uh, analysis. Um, this is more a practical philosophy. This is a philosophy, when put into practice, actually changes the quality of people's experience without having to believe in God or believe in reincarnation or whatever it is, it works. Now, in my own case, um, I feel that the way forward at this juncture is to return to what is being called early Buddhism. Now, this term came up yesterday. Um, by early Buddhism, we mean the teachings of Gautama before they became organized into a systematic orthodoxy of belief. Um, in other words, what we can derive from the suttas, I'm going to be using this word a lot, I'm sure you understand it, the suttas is Pali for the discourses that are attributed to the Buddha and his followers in the Pali Nikayas, the collections of uh, texts that um, are found in the middle-length sayings, the long sayings, the connected sayings, and the numerical, uh, sorry, not sayings, discourses. And then in texts like the Dhammapada, the Sutta Nipata, and others. We're returning, uh, many of us are returning to these source materials. Uh, as, uh, in a way, a ground on which we can start again uh, without um, carrying with us the baggage of uh, Theravada or Zen or Tibetan or Pure Land or Nichiren orthodoxy. Buddhism has uh, survived, I would argue, not because it's preserved something intact over hundreds of years, but because it has managed to successfully reinvent itself when it encounters a new cultural or historical uh, situation. And what's going on now is basically the same kind of thing, except Buddhism here is encountering modernity. Um, it's encountering a secular world. And so what emerges out of that conversation, that dialogue, we might call uh, a secular dharma. Uh, that may not be the word that will eventually be used, who knows. But as a kind of working title, uh, I'm going to be using that term. And this is very much um, drawn from a, a critical, careful rereading of the primary suttas. Now, we're going to go into this as we go through the week, so I won't say anything more about that, except that we might describe this process as rethinking the Dharma from the ground up. And I see this process as very much operating uh, in tandem with the, um, with the uh, uh, 
a spread of mindfulness uh, through the contemporary world and addressing the needs of people whose practice is founded in a kind of mindfulness but requires, um, or they are in a sense seeking, um, an ethical and a philosophical frame within which to embed it. So, um, we managed to cover nearly 2,000 years in less than an hour. <laughs> I, hope, uh, I hope I didn't uh, give you too much uh, data, um, but I think the basic narrative uh, development is quite clear. Um, if you want to read more about it, I would suggest you read The Awakening of the West. You could also read a book by Rick Fields called How the Swans Came to the Lake, which focuses more on the American experience. My book is more centered on the European side of things. Um, but I do think it's helpful uh, to locate what we're doing in the historical frame of, uh, of our culture. Okay, that's... Um, that's what I want to share with you this morning. I'm not going to open this up for questions now. I'd uh, suggest that we um, we spend the next half hour uh, doing walking practice in silence. It's a beautiful day. Um, and again, this is a, a study program, so um, you know, don't try to sort of forget about everything that we're thinking about and saying. But allow yourself a more spacious, uh, contemplative uh, frame of mind uh, through walking, or if you wish, go and have a cup of tea and sit quietly somewhere. Uh, try and keep silent during this period. And just mull over whatever might have struck you, not so much intellectually, but has maybe registered in your body somewhere. And if we could continue our conversation uh, in a more embodied way, uh, I think that might be more in tune with the, um, the practices we're doing here um, on the retreat and also that you may be practicing in your own lives. So we'll come back here at 11. And um, then I'd like to have a sitting. And then the second half of that period will open up for a preliminary discussion. This afternoon, I'd like to break you up into groups. We'll do that um, uh, after lunch uh, in the first session here. Uh, and then we'll have a much broader discussion towards the end of the afternoon. Okay? Does that sound doable? Thank you. <coughs> um, is there a bell ringing system? Is someone ringing a bell? I heard a bell earlier this morning. Could you ring a bell um, in about at about five 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 of eleven? Five of 11 yes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.